At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Good morning, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lombek here, the World Messenger, and I am welcoming to Legacy Leaders Podcast. I have a very special guest that is very dear to my heart, the tennis legend here with 57 years of Stanford story, which of 38 years is being exclusively dedicated to men's tennis, with track record of 17 NCAs of men's tennis championships, and so many accolades, awards, and many, many pros uh, that actually performed in being in top 100 ranking and top 50, top 10. And we'll do a little trivia with how many in top one. Any guesses who my guess might be? I have here uh, Mr. Dick Gold from Stanford University. Dick, welcome. Isabella, pleasure to be with the World Messenger. I just have marveled <laughs> at your work and all you've done, and I love your approach to to life and uh, to leadership, and and just uh, very refreshing and and really helpful. Thank you, thank you. I'm so glad that you've managed to find the time in your very busy schedule. I know you are full of surprises and work that you continuously do, <laughs> which we will definitely divulge in a bit. Uh, but I am absolutely thrilled to have you because um, just with amazing track record that you have, do you mind just sharing a little bit audience that don't know much personally life or background story? How did you got into professional tennis? Uh, do you mind giving us a little tidbits there? Uh, I think it's more how I got into tennis in the first place. Uh, my, my dad was a farmer and had a little 13 acre farm where he raised mostly citrus fruit, lemon. Uh, my grandfather had a little farm right next door, immediately adjacent to it, where he had a horse, and I used to ride horse every morning and have my little 22 rifle go out, shoot squirrels or rabbits or something like that, cans, whatever, whatever it might be. And so most of my life growing up was spent in, in on the farm, and I really enjoyed that. And then uh, about 11 years old, a neighboring farmer had put in a tennis court. And my mom said, well, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to just teach how to play tennis and little league and those kinds of sport, organized sport was just getting started in those days. Mm -hmm. And I just tried out for the little league team and, and did well. And uh, I was all ready to start playing baseball. And, but I had a tennis lesson. I didn't want to have that tennis lesson. My mom said, you're going to have it or you can't ride your horse this summer. I said, well, mom, I guess I better take that tennis lesson. Just one. She said, okay. <laughs> So I go and sit, and first of all, there's a lesson ahead of mine, Isabella, and on that lesson are two little gals. I'm, I'm 11 at the time. They're about 14. My hormones are just getting started, and they were twins, and uh, they had little short shorts on, little hot pants in those days, you call them, and little halter tops, and I'm looking at them, watching them hit the tennis balls, and saying, hey, this sport really has something, maybe. <laughs> and then I got on the court, and you know, I'm a Levi guy, jeans, and I didn't want to wear little white shorts all around and all over town. I mean, what the heck? This is a farm town for crying out loud. And uh, and yet my instructor was really good. And he took, he kind of sensed what I was there. He didn't really want to be there. And, and in those days, most kids didn't want to play. They, their folks made them play to expose them to sport as, as parents have responsibility to sport or other activities. Mm. And he made every ball I hit the most exciting moment of my life. Every ball I hit was equated to another sport. In those days, heavyweight champion of the world was Rocky Marciano. And they say, you step into the hit like Rocky Marciano steps into the pitch. <laughs> Ralph Keimer, who was the batting league champion of the day in the major leagues, you watch the ball come off the racket as Ralph Keimer watched it come out of the pitcher's hand. And, and just everything with that big, rough, dynamic voice, I'm going, whoa. And I went home and I couldn't put my racket down. We had a gravel driveway and a, and a garage that had some slats and it's the ball would bounce crooked off it. And then it bounced crooked off the gravel. But I, 
kept hitting against it, hitting against it. I just loved the feeling of the ball and the racket. He made it an exciting experience. And that kind of led to what I finally ended up doing. Uh, I, I think when we look back on our lives, the teachers that made the most, our favorite teachers were, were those that brought the subject alive. They didn't just get up there and recite a lecture. They, they, they showed their passion for what they're doing. They, you could see how much they enjoyed what they're doing. And, and that just kind of uh, really made an impression on me that, that you have to project that you're enjoying what you're doing. And later on, when I became a club pro after graduating from college, I would be on the court 12 hours a day and I'd try to be just as enthusiastic and just as careful and, and, and enthusiastic as I would with my 12th hour of lessons as it was with my first. And sometimes that first hour at 7.38 in the morning is a little tough one to give too. But no matter what happened, I had to be ready to go and give it my very, very best. And so it was a big lesson for me. And I, I was hooked from that first lesson. This guy, by the way, was, uh, uh, we were kind of off in Timbuktu. We were about um, an hour north of Los Angeles, between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles on the coast. And, uh, th but this guy had a daughter who was a, a really top world player. There was no professional tennis in those days, but she was ranked in essence, probably Nancy Chafee. And she actually married Ralph Kiner, Nancy Chafee Kiner. She was ranked in the top 10 in the world, basically. In those days, the rankings weren't quite based on the points they are now, but she was a very, very good player. So that was another thing that I would read the sports page every day, like a Bible, and, and she would be in there saying she did reach the fourth round of Wimbledon or whatever it was, and, and it became someone I could look up to and follow. Wow, what a powerful story, and, and how it is actually showing up that all those beginnings starts with influence of family, right? And schools and education, and then you kind of find your way in where the passion leads so well my mom was a teacher too she was uh it was not my she was a substitute teacher when the kid the three of us were growing up i'm the oldest of three and uh as we were growing up and then she gradually started teaching full-time at the high school i was at which i didn't really <laughs> i wasn't enamored you know, like a nightmare right <laughs> but she was really popular with the students they all really liked her and so it was it was fun for me and she was fine i never had to take a class with her and she stayed out of my way and i could do my thing and and yet, um, uh, so I did have teaching in my family and, and in my blood a little bit that way too. And I know she enjoyed it and really enjoyed the students and was able to. And, and, and of course, that's what makes, it makes it good for me to be able to enjoy the people I'm teaching. That is beautiful. Shows also the passion that kind of continues. When you find the passion, when you love what you do, never dies. And, and you living example, how many years of dedication you gave to the sports and perfecting the craft, but also uh, obviously through years of evolution of coaching, right? Well, maybe, maybe we can change that around a little bit. Think how many years the sport gave to me and how much enjoyment it allowed me to have throughout my life. Uh, I enjoyed teaching a beginner on a court for the first time a little. In fact, I must tell you a story. I have a couple of great moments in, that really influenced my teaching. And one is a continuation of the Harold Chafee, Coach Harold Chafee story I was telling. Uh, when I was at Stanford my last year, in the summer, I was working somewhere with my coach, who was the pro at a local club. And he asked me to go out, and he couldn't leave the club because he was busy there, but to go out to the community and give lessons on the private courts that he could not service. So that was my job. And toward the end of the summer, there was a home in a, near, a neighboring community that I would go out to and they would line up lessons for me. And a new gal came right toward the end of the summer and she had about four lessons, one a week for a half hour. Mm. I think it was $5 an hour she paid. And uh, I, I don't remember her name. And that's the first thing I regret. But she was cute as a bug's ear and and would come out and this rack was twice her size she was about five or six years old and the rackets there was no small there were no small rackets in those days and i got her to have the most beautiful beautiful forehand swing ever mm. and you could never hit a ball and so for the whole half hour i was telling her how nice her hair was how beautiful her swing was how great she was getting on the correct foot and stepping into the head in those days or or uh how what where'd you get those shoelaces they're incredible or gosh that blouse looks nice on anything i think of because i couldn't tell her great job <laughs> she never hit the ball and finally it happened to be the last the last lesson this summer and she hit the ball and it was a beautiful she put it all together really for one hit that's how bad a teacher i was it took me four weeks before i could get her to hit a ball and, and I, I said, oh, that's great. And I started clapping and yay, good, whatever her name was. And she looked at me and she started jumping up and down and she went up and she essentially froze in midair. 
And she looked down at Isabella and there's a little puddle of water forming under her. She got so excited she couldn't contain herself. <laughs> she realized what had happened when she landed. She stopped jumping. She looked down again, looked up at me, looked down again, and she ran up the steps out. She didn't live there. She came there for her lesson and went out the back door, through the house, out the front door, and I've never seen her again. I know I've run into her sometime over the years, but I would never recognize her, and no one's come forward to claim that, yes, that was that was me. Wow, what an interesting <laughs> but it me, story. It reinforced in me, as a great teaching moment, the importance in how, how making it exciting for someone. Mm -hmm. She got so excited that I guess that would be the extreme, but it was really fun for me and a great lesson. That is a wonderful story because some people want to just try the best they can and they're not necessarily cut out to be the pros, right? But then but then they're enjoying the moments, enjoying all those uh, precious dialogues. Part, part the and, You're and, hitting and, the ball, the feel the ball on the racket. The success is, you know, a good teacher can make anything sound successful can give you can give you a good feeling about anything you're doing there's something you're doing as well maybe you, like i say you put your shoes on right or your hair was done just a certain way on that day or whatever it might be there's always something good to make your people feel good and they identify that of course with the sport or whatever it is they're doing and encouragement sometimes uh, it comes in different shapes and you just exactly pointed out because it's not always just how many points you win but how much you've truly put efforts to win those points right so Obviously, you know more than anybody what that looks like in the professional arena, uh, working for so many years with uh, male athletes. So do you mind sharing, you graduated from Stanford, obviously, and then you deep dived right away to continue to coach in men's tennis at Stanford. Do you mind sharing what were those early days were like when you transition uh, and, and start really focusing more on variations of different talents, different styles, different approaches, different challenges, helicopter parents. Let's go, one, let's go one step at a time. So then I ended up getting into Stanford. I went to Stanford and ironically, a fellow who just graduated ahead of me was the older brother of these two young gals that, I had, that were my first lesson. And uh, neither one of them went to Stanford, but he went to Stanford. It was in the fraternity that he helped me get into the fraternity I finally joined. So wow. we were pretty close. And ironically, his daughter, one of his daughters ended up playing tennis at Stanford for my wife on the first national championship team for women at Stanford and any sport. Wow. A small world, that all kind of relates. But, but uh, my coach at Stanford said, you know, uh, I, I went to Stanford. I was going to be pre-law, political science, uh, pre-law, and po very possibly going to politics. That was kind of what I was looking at. And I was active in student government and that kind of thing. I really enjoyed leadership roles like that. And, and it was a good challenge for me. And Yet I was teaching tennis for the recreation department in the summers. In fact, for Harold Chafee, I would go over to a neighboring community where he was running a summer program. And I'd work on a hot court three hours a day in the morning. And then he'd take me to get a pineapple sherbet at lunchtime. And that was my pay. And that pineapple sherbet, believe me, was a delicacy. I just <laughs> loved it. <laughs> but I, I then started working about... 15 or 16 years old, helping out my high school coach at Ventura in the recreation department. And it became quite close to the superintendent of recreation. And I decided, well, you know, I, I, I like this. I like, my mom's a teacher. I kind of like working with kids and with, with adults at all ability levels. Uh, I, I became in charge of that program there. And then I really, really liked how it built up and the response we're getting from the kids in this case. And uh, my coach knew I was doing this in the summers rather than playing. I never played tennis in the summers and uh, I, because I had to work. Mm -hmm. And so my coach said, why don't you go into teaching where you have the security of a nine to five job, if you wish, and a, a pension plan and things like that, and then work on the weekends in the summer times and vacation periods at a club where you can make the teaching worthwhile financially. You can make it all come together and you can earn a pretty good living. And I said, well, you know, that doesn't sound bad. Uh, I was going to major in recreation at Stanford, but after I changed from poli sci, but they didn't have such. But I changed from being a recreation major type person instead of trying to be a superintendent of recreation like one of my mentors did in Western Ventura, I decided to go into coaching and they had a physical education major then. Mm. And my coach said, he said, you know, you don't have to be an All-American to be a good tennis coach. You don't have to be a world champion to be a teaching pro. 
you know, just, just learn the game. So my last two years of school, actually, I never graduated from Stanford. I, I, I got into grad school after my fourth year without graduating so I could play tennis my fifth year and have another year of eligibility. <laughs> so so I, I say class of 59, master's in 60. So I wanted to correct that in your resume of me. And um, thank you for clarification. So I, and I knew at that time what I was going to do. So I was watching my last year of playing. I was watching really closely how the other coaches handled their teams on the court, uh, what their players did, and so on. And it really was valuable for me. It was an in-service training, really. I was a player, but I was also watching what the other coaches were doing, how their players were responding to them, and so on. So that's how I got into actually teaching. I graduated. I got my master's teaching credential, taught two years of high school while I was working as a pro on the vacations and holidays at a club. And uh, and then uh, when the job at a new junior college opened, Foothill Junior College, I went there as their tennis coach. I only had tennis then. When I was teaching high school, I had health education, which basically was sex education for 14-year-olds and drugs. That was a fun course to teach because <laughs> there was no syllabus. And, wow. And back then coach, in 50s and 60s? Wow. <laughs> it really is fun. And then coached uh, his early 60s, and then coached uh, freshman freshman football, and of course tennis. And but I really was a tennis guy, so I went into photo college where I was their first coach and uh, taught all the PE classes for tennis. And then I was just tennis. I was there four years, and my coach at Stanford retired. So one of those things being the right place, at the right time. I camped on the athletic director's doorstep until he hired me. I just think he wanted to hire someone to fill a position. We only had eight sports then; they were all men's sports. And tennis was one of the eight, so I was very lucky. And my coach was part-time. He'd come to practice at 3 o'clock from his club job where he was teaching and leave at 5. And he'd bring one box with 12 balls in it, four cans of balls. And that was those were the balls for our practice. Never had a bucket of balls or anything like that. Mm. But we got better, and, and we were hitting a lot and playing a lot with each other. And we had a lot of, of, of good players, not great players, but good players. So it was the first time I played really all the school year because I played football and basketball and tennis in this right seasons and nothing in the summer. So it was a great experience for me. And I got better and better and, and not enough playing a pro tour because there was no pro tour. It was 1968 when tennis started being a, a true professional sport rather than that Jack Kramer playing Poncho Gonzalez or whatever on a barnstorming tour. So uh, I didn't really have a choice of playing the pro tour even if I were good enough. And I wasn't good enough, frankly. So I started teaching and then my job, that's how I got to Stanford six years after I started teaching. That is brilliant. That is fantastic way because I love that you were also flexible. You showed a tremendous sense of flexibility and willingness to put an extra effort and then let you to discover yourself, your skills and where do you really fit and, and what drives you. And as a result, you have amazing stellar record. Do you mind just sharing, as I mentioned earlier, a little trivia? I mean, who did you work with? Over the years, obviously, you created some of the top tennis players in the world. Your track record, I don't think it can be beaten by anybody else, you know, given how much uh, amazing um, outputs you created, because you obviously know what it takes to mold and, and, and develop player to the caliber to be the pro. Do you mind sharing a little bit some of those golden nuggets um, that led you consistently, consecutively, over and over to achieve those amazing goals and objectives? Well, Isabella, first of all, I, I never hit a ball. <laughs> so, I, so so my players won, won all the championships. Uh, my job was- You knew what to tell them and what to do and how to coach them, Mr. Humble. <laughs> Oh, but I had, I was blessed because, you know, we didn't, we, Stanford had always been a good program. We'd always been in the top 10 in the country. I think my coach had been there for 16 or 17 years, starting at the end of World War II. And Stanford had never been out of the top 10. They started keeping track after World War II. And I looked it up one time, and I think our average finish was sixth or seventh in the country. But in those days, the powerhouses, there, there were no indoor courts really throughout the country. And in those days, excuse me. SC and UCLA and Southern California with the good weather were, were great programs and everyone else was everyone else. They were up here. Uh, occasionally Trinity in Texas, excuse me, a small school at, in San Antonio would come up with, with a great program. Uh, but really, the, the, the day in and day out, USC and UCLA were the, were the gold standard. Everyone else is down below that. I think one year, the year I redshirted, 
uh, we were actually second in the country, but only because SC and UCLA were ineligible to play because of recruiting violations. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but so I figured, and when I was in junior college, I had a couple of players who were pretty good. One one ended up getting when he went to four-year university, getting the quarterfinals and display singles. Another got the round of 16, another round of 32. So I'd had experience in coaching pretty good players. And I felt really pretty confident, almost cocky that I could do this. I, I told my boss when I was hired, I really felt we could win a national championship. He kind of looked at me, yeah, of course, sure. And uh, I told one of the people I hired, I think we can win a national championship. And people just, just shook their heads and were too nice to say much, but you could see what they're thinking. And one of our first team meetings, uh, one of my I told my guys what, what our goal was, which is an important point, uh, to win a national championship. And they just about, as their comments in later years told me, they just about flipped because there's no way, Coach, hate to burst your bubble. It's never going to happen here at Stanford. And when I was at Stanford, uh, it was a very defeatist attitude in all sports, the eight sports we had. It was, well, you can't have this kid who's smart and a great athlete at the same time. There's not time in the day. Uh, we can't get the great athlete into Stanford. And in other words, it was an area of defeat, defeat, defeatism and also uh, one of resignation. In fact, it will never happen amongst our coaching staff and everyone else. About the, guy, about the time I was hired, a fellow who actually was a coach of the Denver Broncos for a while, became football coach, a fellow named John Ralston. Mm. And John was the most positive guy. We came about the same time. He might have been about a year older than now, uh, earlier than I but an incredible individual, everything was positive. In those days, we didn't have secretaries. If we wanted to type a letter, we'd type it on the typewriter, two fingers ourselves. <clears throat> if we wanted copies of something, we'd mimeograph them and run them off. It was a different world, no cell phones, of course. And John told me, he answered every mail, piece of mail he got personally. He answered every phone call immediately if there were messages on his phone message. He didn't have administrative assistance in those days. And he was really, really positive. And he says, we're going to do this at Stanford. And sure enough, he went to the Rose Bowl in 71 and 72. Wow. Well, I started the fall of 66, and we were building our tennis program about the same time. So he was a great role model for me. And I think we're really, between the two of us, probably we changed the attitude at Stanford to one we can win. And it turned out in the 70s, we got <laughs> started to see how cocky I was. Well, we can do this. My first year, we finished uh, 16th in the country. First year we'd ever been out of the top 10 after I'd said, well, we're going to win this thing. <laughs> my, second year, <laughs> my second year, we're 33rd in the country. And I didn't even know that many schools played tennis. And my third year, we won nine matches and lost 12. It was the first year freshmen could play in varsities. And until then, they had a freshman, we had a freshman team and a junior varsity team. But our pack eight conference in those days would not let the freshmen play. They thought it hurt their academic, getting settled in academics. So they wouldn't let them play, but the NCAA would. So our team record was nine and 12. And when we went to the NCAA, then the NCAA rules applied when we went to the championship. Yeah. In those days, it was not a team tournament. It was an individual tournament with four singles players and two doubles teams. They could be the same people representing university. And you got a point for each round they won in an individual tournament. We went to the tournament with four freshmen. Five freshmen actually, one yeah. played just double, and we took eight. Took eight, so we're back and I left my varsity at home. Took my freshman, and so we were get, gradually getting a little better and a little better and a little better. But my top couple of players for a year or two at transfer because they didn't see much hope in Stanford tennis. They couldn't play as freshmen. Their buddies at the schools are playing as freshmen, and so I thought, oh, we're never going to make this. But we started to get pretty good. We had a good base in 1972. And then Roscoe Tanner came to Stanford, and that turned everything around. Roscoe was a Wimbledon finalist, lost in five sets to Borg in the finals, and he really was the one who changed the program. And I recruited him on that basis. Roscoe, come to Stanford. Be the first. Be the guy who turns us around. And he did. And people love watching him play, and he brought other players in, and, and that, you know, you can't win without the horses. And then... And uh, the rest of history. <laughs> let's start. Let's go start. Uh, but to get him, it was ahead. interesting because we had to, I, I was, I didn't play any, I wasn't a well-known pro. I was well-known in Northern California because we'd done a lot of things there, but mm -hmm. there were only so many players in Northern California. My recruiting hotbeds were both Northern Cal and Southern Cal, but nationally, nobody knew me from Adam. And would you let your parent go across country if you wanted him 
or her to be a good player with that coach with no record that anyone knew about? No, of course not, not knowing the coach. So I went to the USTA, United States Tennis Association, and said, you know, you have a national training camp each year. It's about 10 days long. And from that team, from that program, from that 10 days of practice and tryouts, you select a national team of eight, six or eight players. And those players have their way played all, paid all summer, all our expenses, and they get to go to junior Wimbledon. There's a different qualifying system then than now, junior French and what have you. We have two great tournaments in Northern California, the California State Championship in San Jose, the National Hard Court in 20 miles south of Stanford, and the following week, the National Hard Court Championship in Burlingame, 20 miles north. So why don't you have these kids come to Stanford? We will house them. We will put them up and give them a great time. They practice, train here for 10 days, and then they can go to the two tournaments in a row, the State Championship National Hard Court, and then start their national tour. So they had almost four weeks of solid tennis right in the Stanford area, 10 days at Stanford itself. Barry McKay was former number one player in the United States, a great playing pro, a great person, was the coach of the team. A high school coach traveled the uh, coach the camp. A high school coach traveled with the kids all summer, the team that was selected. And I was the gladhander, uh, the guy, the host, the guy that had the John Phillips. <laughs> marching tapes, Susan marching tapes playing every morning when they came to practice, had the American flags and every 10 feet on top of each fence post that had a sponsor, uh, the sponsor of the campus, Transamerica Corporation, a big corporation at the time based in San Francisco. They put a lot of money into the camp, took the kids to San Francisco one night for just fun. Another night we went to the Giants game, sat in the clubhouse, ate in the clubhouse uh, for the uh, sponsors. It was, it was, we had first one, they own Warner Brothers, the first one, James Bond movies in camp. And and the kids really had a good time, and I got to know them all. And the irony of it was, their way was paid to Stanford by the USTA. <laughs> but every top kid in the country had to come because they couldn't be on the team unless they were there during the tryouts. So every top 10, 20, 30 of them, every top kid in the country was there. So... They got to know me, I got to know them, and that's how Roscoe Tanner finally decided to come to Stanford, and that started everything. That is amazing. So, so this is a great example that not everything blooms and expands and grows fast, but perseverance and then adjusting and, and seeing what works and keeping up, but also allowing yourself to fail. Like even though you had a very ambitious goals and you know where you're headed, you did not necessarily say, you know, we're going to get there today, but you created the vision, you set the tone, you set the stage, and since then, looking to but try to... There can, be, there, can be, there can be problems with that, because this goal was my goal, not the kids' goal. It was too far out there for them. And I think it's really important when we talk about goals, we talk about setting goals that are realistic to the people with whom we're working and are around, whether it's our work goals and our envir working environment, whatever it is, and because they have to be able to buy into that. And they have to, if they don't, if they don't believe it's going to happen or can happen, it, it goes right over their head and actually it can be, it can be detrimental. And it took me a while to realize this, but I was talking way out there for the caliber of player that I had. And uh, I gradually toned that down. And I think after we won our first championship, it was really an ego thing to me. I wanted to prove to myself that I could get this thing done. And a lot of times your ego gets in the way. And I, uh, I, I learned that when I stopped telling my kids, guys, this is a key match. If we win this match, then we're in position to this. So we have to do this and you have to do this, you have to do this. Uh, I put too much pressure on. And once we finally won the championship, I thought, well, hey, I proved I could do it. All me, of course, all me, uh, <laughs> which was the wrong attitude entirely. And I said, I don't care if I ever win another one. Well, sure enough, in spite of a lot of things that happened during the year, and losing my two top players before just before the championship, we won it again. And, and then it became a different thing. I was a different coach then because I stopped putting as much pressure on my players because we had won it once. And uh, they had also won it, so the goal of winning it became more realistic. Uh, they, if you talk to my players, they will say, we never heard you say our goal was to win the national championship. We just assumed it was. And if you can get create an environment where that is the case, then that's really, really powerful. Uh, a company where people are coming to work knowing we're gonna invent, invent the next COVID-19 vaccine 
or we're going to do this or do that. And everyone's working their tails off to do this. I think another thing in terms of goal setting, Isabella, it was important to me. Uh, all four of my, well, five of my kids played high sport through high school, four of them played in college. And different sports, one tennis player, two swimmers, and a volleyball player. Wow. But, but I think the point was that, that uh, you know, you set stepping stone goals so people have a chance to achieve them and can feel good about themselves. And tennis is really hard. You know, you, 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 you measure improvement by how well I play you and I beat you 6-3, 6-3. And next week you beat me. And I think, oh, I suck. I've gotten worse. I don't give credit to the fact you might have gotten better over the last two, three or four months and that all of a sudden your growth spurt is caught up with me and, and maybe I'm still playing better, but I measure it on how I do against you or what position I play on the team or what my ranking is in my section, mm. whether or not, not acknowledging whether or not other people have improved better or slower than myself. And so it's a false measure. Swimming, it's easy. You can lose every race in swimming, having two kids who are captain of swim teams, one at Stanford, one at USC. Um, they they can they work like crazy, but they can lose every race and feel good about themselves because they always have the opportunity to better their time, whether or not they win the race. So winning the race becomes not the end result for most of these kids. It's the idea of improving, and you can show it tangibly in sports like track and field where you can run faster or jump farther or swimming. We can beat your time. Sports like tennis is very hard. When I look at McEnroe down in court four, this is a, when John was in school, I said, hey, Mac, that's how I want you to get four. That's how I want you to put in that four. And that's how I want you to get set up on it. He looked at me and four courts away, coach, you're an idiot. That ball went in the bottom of the net. It was set point. And I go, yeah, Mac, but you hit it better. You did what we've been working on better. Mm. But he couldn't understand that because the result was not better. And so measuring improvement in tennis is really difficult. And then you have to combine the individual improvement and take an individual sport with all of its egos and create a team sport and team environment where that becomes more important than the individual and where everyone wants to win, not so much because they want to win, but they don't want to let the team down by them not playing up to their capability, which may or may not be winning. Or not performing, yeah, not performing, uh, letting team down because um, it is about that melt of toughness and, and showing up and doing your best at every given moment that you can, given what you're dealing with. And I'm so glad you... Well, that's a great point, Isabella. Doing your best, relevant to how much you're willing to put into it and the circumstances around you. Yes. People say, well, just go out and do your best. That's too nebulous. Uh, doing your best because I can't be the best. I never was the best coach I could be because I had to go home at night and see a wife and kids. I didn't. I could have spent a lot more time watching tape. I couldn't be the best parent I could be and spend more time with the kids, or I wouldn't have a job. We never can devote ourselves wholly to one thing. We have to pick and choose. So always say, I want to be commensurate, the best I can be commensurate with the other things I have to do. Make that choice and stay with it. The other thing that's important in goals. Uh, you know, we tend to measure success in terms of winning. And we get messed up also because we think a little bit about being perfect. Yes. Right. And that starts in kindergarten. You come home from school and you have 10 words on a page. C-A-T-D-O-G. And you got them all spelled right. And sure enough, there's a gold star on top of the page. There's a smiley word. And the teacher wrote across the top of the page, perfect exclamation mark. And right away in our minds as a little kid, we feel we have to be perfect to be successful. And we forget the top hitter in baseball fails to get a hit two thirds of the time. The top quarterback in football fails to complete a pass a third of the time. Mm -hmm. So failure is a part of getting better and, and a part of living. And we have to learn to accept it and move on. We can always do better. There's no such thing as perfection. And you can't measure success with perfection. I don't think you've ever played Shot an 18 playing golf, as an example. <laughs> You're not going to bat a thousand, but you got to get the bat off your shoulder. You have to take a swing. You're not going to shoot 100% from the floor, but you don't shoot. You don't score. You have to shoot. So we have to remember those things. Excellent, excellent points. Um, 
because uh, that is uh, so applicable in life, not only just on the courts, on the sports, and, and obviously dealing with the tennis that is highly demanding, highly specialized sport, and for a lot of players, a tremendous, tremendous sacrifice. And as a coach, well, I'm sure, obviously, who is also husband and father and has other responsibilities, tournaments, travel, uh, so many variables, but that attitude and aptitude that you set up positivity and trying your best with what you got, because our best constantly changes and fluctuates, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but when we bring that attitude and we know that we did our best, on the end of the day, we don't then feel like we let anybody else down specifically ourselves, because we measure, we know on the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people say, we know if we did perform and we did we give everything we got. Uh, and since like, again, your track record, I know you're very humble about it, it's speaking volumes, uh, how many uh, Stanford players that you coach over the years end up to rank actually on top 10 men tennis players in the world. Do you mind? <laughs> And I, I, I know there were nine players who were in the top 15. Okay. Uh, most of those were in the top 10. But I would start with John Mackin, who was one. Mackin was one. I think Jeannie Mayer was number four. I think Sandy Mayer and Tim Mayotte were both five or six. Uh, David Wheaton was 11. I'm forgetting Rossania was in there 13. Pat Dupre was semifinals at Wimbledon. He was 14. I'm forgetting a couple of people, but... I've been blessed to have them in doubles. We had uh, seven guys who were number one in the world in doubles at some time, at least once at one point during their career. So I'm really proud of that. I, I think the guys have done really remarkably. And and, um, and and a lot of guys have been out there, a lot of guys in the top 100. And I know one year at Wimbledon, it was uh, 1982, and there were eight Stanford guys in the final 32 that had played for me. And I think the next year we were actually, we were actually at Wimbledon in 1983 with a group. Mm. And we were there only for the first week because that's where you can see the most tennis when you have a group of people that you're hurting around. Mm. And then we went down to Marbella for the second week in the sun and just stayed, stayed on the beach with everyone, played a little tennis in the morning with the beach in the afternoon. And during that second week, it ended up that we had four guys reach at least the quarterfinals at Wimbledon in 1983. And actually, one of my wife's players beat Christy Everett to reach the quarterfinals of the women's draw. But we weren't there for the quarterfinals. We'd already gone to Marbella. Wow. <laughs> but that was, uh, and then for a number of years, we would have, uh, gosh, it's been 10 or 12 years in a row, we would have at least 10 guys in the top 100 in the world at some point during the year. So it was really interesting in the uh, uh, late 70s through, through the early 90s. And in the early 90s, uh, so many other players from other countries started doing better that it was a little harder for the Americans to keep up. <laughs> And, and on that note, uh, things shifted, right? Things shifted so much, even, even around the sport itself, then coaching the player, and always that um, where the player role became, uh, starts and where the coach's role ends and all of that. And I'm sure you've seen so much transformation that occurred, not only on personal, but also professional level. Do you mind just giving some golden nuggets in terms of uh, where the sports is heading now based on your uh, experience and what you're seeing, how things are changing to keep up with, with the global scene, with the, with the different styles? Well, you know, from World War II, at least, I, I think I didn't know much about tennis before World War II, and, but from World War II on through probably the late 80s, almost and even into the 90s when San Francisco beat Agassi still as a certain volleyer, the game is really uh, uh, getting to the net and and serving and volleying. And about that time, uh, a couple of things happened. Courts became a little slower. Everyone complained about the speed of the grass at Wimbledon. They started using a different kind of grass. Uh, hard courts were used to be all cement. They became more asphalt courts. The acrylic topping is where they can control the speed. They slowed those down a little bit. Uh, I don't know whether they made the clay at French quicker or not, but that's possible by the granules of the uh, of the bricks, so to speak, that they put in the clay. Uh, but the court speeds kind of became more similar and, in essence, a little slower. That gave players a little more time to take bigger swings, bigger back swings. Mm. And then people started changing the grip over in the late 80s, early 90s, more from a 
used to be on a forehand example, you'd shake hands with a racket and you'd hit the ball with the palm of your hand. All of a sudden the grip turned around and people would come from much lower in the ball and come over the ball more, which imparted that and a different kind of string, imparted a lot more spin in the ball and the ball would dip a lot more. So you had more time to repair because the course was slower, which allowed you to take a bigger backswing but since you couldn't rely for the velocity of the ball to be transferred from the speed of it back from your racket back the other way, you know, for every action is reaction, uh, it wasn't quite the same. You had the ball was hit and slow down, and you had to generate your own speed, which took a lot more body effort. So the body, the whole game became a more rotational game. Your your the body would rotate the swing would rotate, the body would rotate the swing around it, the swing would rotate the body around it. I don't know how you'd say it, but a much more rotation game. And and it became with all this hard hitting you could do now because the spin, you could hit harder and you had more time to hit harder with a bigger backswing that it became harder for players to reach the ball. And three or four rallies, if you tried to step into each shot, mm-hmm. you, you would be behind the net. Three or four balls later, you couldn't get to it. So people started using the open stance and the swing actually, actually uh, lent itself to that. So now... The game was almost all rotational with your upper body and not so much linear as moving your body weight into the shot forward toward the net. So the game changed that way quite a bit about uh, um, in, in the 90s. And uh, I coached in 2004, but in, by 2004, uh, I, I taught all my guys. I did want them still to be able to serve in volley and come in on returns and to attack to get to the net. But it was really hard doing that because they're they're having a lot of success staying back. These big groundies in strokes. So I probably left tennis about the right time for what I was really good at, and I was teaching first strike tennis. And 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 since then, obviously, right now, as you mentioned earlier, um, but thank you for explaining because that is also evolution in technique itself, right? And in the style and speed, okay. things that we don't really uh, as a first don't know or take take in consideration. <laughs> And, and that's why certain players perform very well on specific terrains, but they don't do very well on the others. Not everybody can do well, great. That's true. And that's less, less relevant now than it was because it's the, the different kind of services are all more the same. But the grip change that this uh, having more time to get more power and in essence more spin, that grip change is what dictated how this ball was swung at. So the swing itself changed. Excellent. And, and what you mentioned also that um, obviously since you left, things even more progressed. But in general, regardless of techniques and um, in order to really be the best you can be and, and things that could be applicable in life, I, I, I see the pattern, uh, what it really takes now to be a great athlete, what it takes to be a great coach. Uh, and I, based on obviously listening to you and knowing your story, uh, obviously consistency uh, showing up, but it's 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 also a couple other very personal nuances that I think uh, you have a incredible wisdom. Um, what what would you say to attribute it to your consistent success and something that will never change, and that is very relevant you know, even for the future generations to keep in mind, which is our own individual contribution and our own mindset. and And what would you say to some of those? core elements that every player as well as every coach should always keep it in front front well i think i think a really really important thing isabella is flexibility um things change in my case the game changes i did change with it some i could have changed with it the rest of the way i'm sure i just wasn't didn't it was time for me to stop i've been there 39 years 30 years as a coach and i stayed on as director of tennis for 14 so you know, that was, that was, I, I'd coached enough. I had six years of coaching before that. So 44 years, a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but, but I think being flexible is really important. I think another thing that's important when we're dealing with people is the ability to listen. And so many times as an instructor, we're used to giving out information as a coach, a life coach, if you wish. A, uh, uh, I, 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 I'm really interested in leadership and I, I see all these books the 10 keys to leadership, the five keys of this, the four keys of this. Uh, I don't read them. Uh, we're all different. You have to be, first of all, you lead by example. That's a really, really right. important thing. Yes. And I can't, I can't expect my kids to do things that I'm not willing to do. I can't expect them to be on time if I'm not on time. 
I can't expect them to pick up a paper when they're walked by the courts, them to pick up a paper or a piece of trash and put the ball can top away if I don't put it away. So you lead by example in these kinds of things. And uh, I think that's the most powerful. You can read all the books you want, but how you live your life is going to exert more influence on anyone else, for better or worse, than any one thing. So I think leadership by example is key. Don't do anything you wouldn't expect to be able to do yourself or uh, want to do yourself. Uh, realize that there's no such thing as perfection. Um, really value flexibility. I think that was one of the stronger traits I had. Uh, it's interesting, I'm, I'm writing a book now and someone asked me about, we'd won 10 or 12 championships. And this guy was a good friend of mine and one of our, our biggest supporters financially. And he had played baseball at UCLA and he's in their Hall of Fame for baseball. And he asked me one day, he said, Dick, you, you want, your teams have won 10 or 12 championships. How, how do you do that? And I said, well, Jack, I have the best players. And he said, no, I'm UCLA. John Wooden was down there. He didn't win for a long time. It took him a long time to start winning. He said, I know more. There's something more than that. What do you think it is? And I couldn't answer him. I could not answer him. And then a uh, fellow coach, when my last year coaching, Matt Canole, really good coach from Baylor, asked me, he said, Dick, how many times were you in the NCAA championship finals? Or how many times did you win the championship? I told him. He said, how many times were you in the final match? And I said, I don't know. And I went back and looked, and we'd won the tournament every year in the finals except for two. So I think, and, and actually we won given my first six years to get going to win the title in our seventh year, uh, we won it more than half the times that, that it was played in the, in the years of 34 years in between. And um, really, really proud of that. And the longevity of that really, really stood, when he asked me that question, went back and looked, it really hit me hard yeah. and, and, and good and um, in a good way. But again, I couldn't describe it. I couldn't define it. How do we do that? How do we manage to stay relevant? For 34 years, I won at least one championship ring. And I, I, I couldn't answer those questions. I didn't know. I just went out and did my thing. So I, I thought of 20 questions to send out to my players. I have 200 players who are still alive. And I've been in contact with all of them throughout the years. And so I sent them 20 questions. And to answer these questions, they weren't true or false, they were essay questions. It probably would take two to four hours to answer these questions. And I had 162 responses, which is wow. amazing. Wow, wow, yes, what an amazing dedication and wonderful. And, and from those I formed, I figured, well, maybe I'm gonna write a book on this. So then, uh, so then, so then I took these, these answers and divided them up into chapters. And uh, and, I, and it's not, I don't know what I did, but they have ideas of what I did. And it's amazing to me, we, we won championships in four different decades, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and even 2000. And, and that's a long period of time, but the values these guys brought forth were the same in the first decade as they were in the last decade. Wow. Uh, they stayed all the way through. And it just, it that's just that amazing. consistency. That's that consistency right. character and personality right. and the leadership and, and like, like trust. I mean, trust is very important. Trust of each other mm -hmm. in a team situation where it's an individual sport, basically. Trust uh, of the coach, uh, the coach trust in them. Um, another thing is building of confidence, getting them to do things they never style of play. They never, most of them never used uh, style of play that I taught, just because they physically weren't able. Uh, until they were strong enough to do so, and that happened to be about college age. So a style of play, getting to execute, and in tennis you can coach on the court in college tennis, which is great, getting to execute on the most pressure, match point, asking them to do something, telling them to do something that they don't normally do, mm -hmm. but I think they can do, but they don't have enough confidence yet to know they can do it. Um, so trusting a coach enough to do it anyway, Challenging, but you knowing exactly how much and when, and then who to push. Well, maybe, maybe not necessarily. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I just think this is the time I have to try it. It's good. It's good. It's like the the guy in the dugout calling the pitches, or for the for the pitcher, or whatever. They're moving his infield around, or outfield around. Uh, it's a gut feeling, or you know, and you. you in a moment. But it's good. But it's also based on experience. Absolutely. And of course, you win a couple of championships, then in the players' eyes, you have more 
more cloud. You know, here I was this young guy starting out knowing and all knowing nothingness. How typical is that? These are 18 year olds who know it all but know nothing, right? That's where I was. <laughs> Come age. on, don't say that loud. <laughs> so, well, you know, you wake home for the first time, you know, this is an easy life. It's just going to all be out there. I think that's really important. One thing that was really important to me, and, and I mentioned this in terms of leadership, and that's, and I, I learned this in football when I was coaching football. We would have my team, I was the only coach for a junior varsity uh, freshman sophomore team the last coaching ring of about five different levels. And I got all the guys who hadn't grown yet that, that a couple of years later at 14 would be much bigger and faster. And many of them stayed on and became really good football players. Otherwise it would have been cut, but these are my guys. And, and I don't think people normally like contact. And so uh, some people I think maybe do, but at somewhere they had to learn to like it. And so oftentimes in tackling, you kind of duck so you wouldn't have to make the tackle or something like that. And so we would have these tackling drills one-on-one -on -one from about seven or eight yards away. No one could really get hurt doing that. But Eddie Matias, long hair coming out from underneath his helmet, little 14-year-old guy, he would, I'd blow the whistle. He'd run up to me. The whole team standing around, if you can picture this. He'd run up to make a tackle. And just before he made the tackle, he slipped and fell to his right. Eddie, do it again. Blow the whistle, runs up, slips and falls left. Mm. Avoid the contact. Mm. Gets up, Eddie, this time we're going to do it. No falling or something like that. <laughs> so he did it again, boom, he slipped and fell back on his back. He avoided contact three straight times. So I go over him and I'm yelling at him. He's lying on the ground on his back, looking up at me. Whole team standing around. I'm yelling every swear word I think I possibly know. I'm trying to be a guy who I think is tough, which is a great coach, Vince Lombardi, who demanded a lot of his players. He wasn't unfair, but he demanded a lot of his players. And I said, you son, he's just swearing like crazy. And everyone's just looking at me like, where's coach going? And finally, I couldn't think of any more swear words. And I was yelling. And he looks up at me. I was spent. He looks up at me, waves, me, waves at me. <laughs> he says, fuck you, Mr. Gould. And I didn't know how to handle it in front of all my guys. I sit there looking at him, and all of a sudden, I started laughing. And, and my guys started laughing. And it was one of the greatest teaching moments ever, other than little gal not keeping her pants dry when she got excited. But this, this guy looking up at me, and all of a sudden, I realized, you know, if I'm going to coach this sport, I better be myself and not try to be Vince Lombardi. And it was a great lesson for me. You have to be yourself, or hopefully your parents have and growing up, you learn values that are good values that are enduring. You can do that. So you give us this amazing carrot now, your book and answers that we are looking for. Do you mind sharing when the book is coming out? I am beyond excited. I know you've been putting over a year of your effort now with all the great answers and, and, and dialogues with those pros. So please tell us, what can we see the final products in our hands? Well, what, what, I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to write a book on Stanford tennis, history of Stanford tennis, and I don't want to write a book on how I led. So the idea of the book, and it's a different idea as well. I haven't seen this done before. Instead of Jack Will saying, this is how I led, led GE, which, by the way, it was a great book. I felt, <laughs> it, would be, it would be from my players, how they felt they were motivated, how they felt mm. they were led. Mm. So it's from the guys being managed, saying how they were managed, rather than me saying how I managed as the manager. Their perspective, their influence, their exactly. point of view, and their their how they received you. How did exactly. You and, and, and grow. And based on from these 20 questions that were just incredible. You know, you talk to someone and you think it's going, especially a kid, you talk to them, it's going this year, not the other year. But the things they said that they remembered, just astounded me. That really made an impression on me. And the continuity of those from cent from century, from decade to decade, amazed me. Um, for team performance, how do you get a team, not necessarily athletic team, any team, family team, business team, how do you get people to feel relevant if they're the ones who are sweeping the floor, as an example? How do you make them feel a part of the team? Mm -hmm. How do you take a guy who's number 12 in the tennis team who's never going to play in his four years, feel a part? So uh, did you feel relevant was one of the questions, as an example. If so, how? Why? Um, how do we deal with egos? Egos, you know, you have to have a certain belief in yourself 
and what you can do and then, and then execute within that to be any good. But sometimes an ego can destroy a team. So how do you meld those egos into a team atmosphere? Um, that was a very interesting question. Uh, only, takes one person. Just, only takes one person to destroy a whole team. So it doesn't take much. You're totally spot on. No, it's true. And it's really important that people buy in, but they have to buy in because of realistic goals. Mm -hmm. They have to buy in because they're uh, another really important thing. Their I think, vision, that they really feel like that they're, that's part of it, that they're, they're, that's also where they're going. If it's not shared vision. And, and you know, having, having fun is so important. We forget sometimes a sport is a sport. It's the uh, game. To win, it's more important to enjoy and to improve. And improvement is the key. And I really enjoyed the way the kids said, our goal was to get better. We enjoyed the process. And that came out again and again and again. And that was after my first year when I put all the pressure on, we have to win this match. We have to do this. We have to, if we do this, this will happen. Um, so it, it, those kinds of things were really insightful for me. And I, so I had this actually two years ago today, I wrote this letter out to the kids for these 20 questions. And, um, and then it took me a year or more to synthesize them into chapters. It was 600 pages of questions. It was incredible. And uh, then to synthesize them and try to separate them out and label them all. So when you read the answer for someone, you know whether he was a starter or a non-starter, a world champion, or a guy who was a scrub on the team, but he's on the team, you know, makes a difference in how they answer. So every quote in his book has a, what, a little bit about their status. Number one in the world, number 12, it says non-starter, not number 12, it says non-starter, starter, uh, whether they were play champion or not so you can read the answer in context and it's amazing how true these answers are and uh, I guess my point now is that when's a book going to be ready I have to find a publisher I've done about what I can do with it and normally when someone writes a book I you know I, I, I'd like to have it be on leadership but it's not it's not a normal leadership textbook but there's it's full of leadership ideas and things that that work from their standpoint and what better leadership testimonial is that what worked what didn't and why? So I have to find a publisher. It's not. It's not. I'm not. It's a different world than when I wrote my first book. So I don't know how I'm going to do that yet. I have both people who are reading it now, and then I assume I'll probably have an editor edit it and find try to shop around or buy an agent, get an agent, hire an agent to get an editor to publish. So that is where you at, and then you anticipating hopefully next year or very soon after that. You know, I feel I've, I've done with what I can do, frankly. And uh, now I have to wait for someone to read it, who I trust, mm -hmm. uh, so people will read it. And first comments were that it's trying to do too much. You're trying to do a book on leadership. You're trying to do one on management. You're trying to do one on sport. You're trying to do, you know, it's, it's not, can't be all those things, pick out an audience. So I'll start with an athletic audience, not just tennis, but it would be basically a book on tennis is relevant to all sport. Uh, and of course, in that, of course, there are a lot of major principles, but, but that's how it's marketed to be, how the editor helps me design the final bit. I imagine it's after probably a year away. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. That is an amazing project and definitely a great legacy. You're, you, you lived already multiple legacies in your lifetime and you're not stopping. So obviously this contribution is going to be a tremendous legacy to future self-developed and professionally developed leaders, players, athletes, uh, human beings, and so many great things to definitely pass on to. Is there anything there that is still left on your bucket list after being traveling so much, raising <laughs> the wonderful children that are so accomplished, coaching so many amazing men that are now great uh, human beings outside of the tennis court? I mean, my goodness, anything left? <laughs> Well, I always like to travel, but uh, but uh, it, it I've been about everywhere, so I don't know. Uh, I want to get the book done. That's one thing. Uh, I'm working right now for a nonprofit. The day I left Stanford on Friday, the next day I started working in a nonprofit in downtown Palo Alto. One concussion education. I volunteer there. It's a very small group, but uh, our work on concussion education has been accepted by almost all of youth football, the certification of youth and for youth coaches. Um, Pop Warner, American football, USA football, which is kind of the father of them all. Uh, we're working with the U.S. Olympic Committee, trying to design a multi-sport version, not a football version, for applicable to all sports. And uh, we have partnerships with the 
U.S. synchronized artistic swimming is called now, USA field hockey, USA wrestling, and so on. So we're getting a lot of good partnerships in the, in the Olympic Committee. They, they would like to have this multi-sport version for youth for a level all the way from the elite level down to beginning age six-year-old levels of introductory introduction sport for parents and for kids. So we're working on it now. We're just, com just completing a fly-through of the human brain where we take you in amongst the blood vessels and the white matter. It's really fascinating. And, but it takes money and everyone wants it, but no one can pay for it. So there's a hard time to raise money right now. So we'll see whether we can finish this off, not the multi-sport version. But I'm having a ton of fun with this. It's been really satisfying. That is amazing that you continue to stay relevant and in true professional uh, coaching that, that loves athletes and athletics and obviously now diving into with uh, with particular nonprofit you just mentioned. Uh, I, I think not only the facts show how much is important, but obviously everything else that is happening. So I just want to say kudos, kudos continuing uh, to give yourself and apply yourself in so many ways and reinventing your skill sets in ways that are so much impacting uh, future generations. Because it's too late when, when, when athletes, young athletes specifically, get major brain damage or um, injuries that could be prevented, that scars yeah, them the for message, life. Exactly. The message, the message is, not, is not not to play. It's just to recognize a concussion, recognize a symptom, don't be afraid to bring it out. And 